Derek Okora is seen by many as one of the world's leading psychic mediums, while others find his work controversial. Sunshine Radio's Andrew Reid has been to see Derek in his home in Lancashire to find out a little more about the man himself. We present Soccer and Spirits in conversation with Derek Okora. Hello and welcome to In Conversation. For this edition, we have come to the border of Merseyside and Lancashire and the seaside resort of Southport. From here, you can look out across the Irish Sea with the sun glinting on the water as people enjoy a warm summer's afternoon. However, it's not the joys of the seafront that I'm here to reflect, but to meet my guest. A man described by many as the country's leading psychic medium, a man who claims to be able to communicate with the spirit world, but also a man who is at the heart of one of this country's caring charities. I'm in the hometown of Derek Akora. Now, this programme will not be seeking to prove or disprove the merits of a medium, but we will get to know a little more of the man behind the headlines. I'm Andrew Reid. Welcome to In Conversation with Derek Akora. Derek, thank you for inviting me to your lovely home here. And it's a pleasure. I haven't yet met Gwen, but I have heard the dogs scraping at yes. the door. You love your dogs, don't you? Absolutely. Both Gwen and I adore our dogs. And uh, right through our lives, since early childhood, we were brought up with dogs. And cats also. Mm-hmm. Meaning Gwen, more cats than me. When I met Gwen, I was um, introduced to the cat world. And I wasn't sure at first, oh, it's the dogs, yes, I was brought up with those. But, you know, in a very short space of time, I found I've been missing out over the years because the love that cats um, throw out to you is just, like, wonderful. So, yeah, we love the mixture of cats and dogs. We'll come back to your four-legged friends a little bit later <laughs> yeah. on. But uh, we're here, we're on the border, really, of, of Lancashire and Merseyside. Yes. You're a Merseyside boy. Absolutely. I was born in, uh, actually, Liverpool, in Brazenose Road, which is, like, you know, virtually the waterfront. And I was actually born in my grandmother's house, not even in the hospital. We moved from Brazenose Road. Mum and Dad didn't get their first home until I was the age of seven. We lived at Grand's. She had this big old Victorian house. And Dad was a seafarer, and he worked as a chef, and he was away for long periods. So Mum was quite happy to live at Grant's. It was quite a common position, though, in those days, where families didn't have so much money, and maybe uh, the main breadwinner was away. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we didn't have much money. Dad worked very hard and, you know, looked after his family. But uh, Mum was happy. But uh, then I got to the age of seven. Mum must have been in the background saying to Dad when he was coming up, we need our own home now because there's more children and of course that's what happened we moved up to um, a place very close to the ancient race course where they run the Grand National and lived there for 50 odd years you've always been based in the northwest then. yes I have I've, I've moved about with my work everywhere I've done a lot of oh uh, my second home basically has been London episodes to and from to London doing this doing that um, but Merseyside, or let's say now, under Lancashire, um, has been my uh, boot hole for 30-odd years. Now, what you're famous for now is not what you could potentially have been famous for if Bill Shankly had had his way. Tell us about your Liverpool days. Oh, wow. They were young years, but wonderful years. Um, because from a little boy, 
Andrew, all I wanted to be, ingrained in my heart and my mind, is I wanted to be a footballer. I used to go, as little girls, go to bed with the teddies. I would never go to bed unless I had a football with me. That was known. That was Derek's teddy as football. And um, I got to um, my junior years, not my infants, but junior, and I I liked sports. I was drawn to sports. Um, I liked all sports, not just football, cricket, uh, tennis. I, I just loved all sports. But it was recognised that I had maybe skills as a young age in football. So it was encouraged by the sports masters and so on and so forth. And before I knew it, I was playing for my school team, captain my teams each year, uh, played for my uh, town team, which was not Liverpool, because we were on the border where Graham was, of Bootle and Liverpool. So I played for Bootle boys, not Liverpool boys. And then I was selected for Lancashire school boys. And I got as far as trials for the English school boys but never ever made it into that uh, squad. Um, but at the age of 13, uh, it appears that f- uh, football scouts from different clubs were watching. And Bill Shankley had one of his scouts uh, watch and then make approach to mum and dad. Uh, we'd love to sign Derek as a, a schoolboy associate. Now, that was at 13 and a half. Which it meant is that if dad was to approve it and countersign it, I would train with them um, with the youngsters um, and maybe train in the evening time after school, Tuesday and Thursday evenings, and play for their junior sides on the weekends, which I did. Now, there was a right tussle in my family because come 15, um, the scouts and everything was really, really putting the pressure on because Bill Shankly wanted to sign me as an apprentice pro, so I'd be on the full-time staff. That was in my heart, my dreams, but it wasn't in that. It certainly wasn't in Dad's because it didn't dawn on me that Dad was an absolute Everton fan. <laughs> because Dad used to take me to the games, so it was always like, to watch Everton. And when Dad realised that Bill Shankly wanted to say, he was sick. He wanted Harry Catrick from across the park, the Blues, to come and sign for Everton. So there was a big debate in my family because all my uncles were Evertonians. And Uncle Tom, I've got to tell you this too, Uncle Tom has a hairdressing salon. And myself and my brother Colin and Dad, when Dad was home, used to go along there and get our haircuts, you know, free. When Uncle Tom found out, Dad phoned him and all my other uncles, what do you think? Should we let him sign for them? No, no! Anyway, um, my mum then got involved and she said, Everton Football Club have not come forward for Derry. Liverpool Football Club have and if I've got any say in it it's better Liverpool Football Club than no other club so I think she overruled my dad's thoughts so very very reluctantly my father took me to Anfield to meet the great Bill Shankly Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan, all the backroom staff. And the names of my childhood. <laughs> yes. And he spoke independently and individually to them all, saying, you know, what uh, would likely happen and if I um, progressed, one day I could play in the main arena in the first team. And he's not going to be coming to a second-rate side because when I signed for Liverpool, from that year, Liverpool started winning. Even the reserve side were winning the reserve, you know, the Central League. So anyway, Dad then said, OK, I'll let you sign for them. 
It's against my wishes. I just wish Harry, but Harry didn't, not at the time. And I signed for Liverpool Football Club in the trophy room at Anfield. And Dad said, well, you signed for them now. You'll never play in blue and white. Red and white for you. And I said, okay. So I came home rather proud. And I said, I've got my wish, my dream. I'm going to, you know, I'm at Liverpool Football Club. And Mum was excited with me and all my aunts. Not my uncles. You know what Uncle Tom did to me? He banned me from going for haircuts anymore afterwards. Anyway, they left me to my devices and I was at Liverpool Football Club and uh, I got as far as the reserves. I could never break into the first team. I wasn't good enough. I tried. And then I moved on to another football club after that. Your life could have been so much different, couldn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's bonkers, really. Psychic Live here on Living TV. Time now for the moment you've all been waiting for. The time for you, Derek, to assume the position on the Psychic platform and give a reading to our studio audience. How are you feeling? I feel okay, thanks, Richard. I can't wait. Then take it away, sir. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> it's great to be here with you. <clears throat> and I'm just um, training my thoughts um, to um, the psychic and the spiritual uh, level. Okay. So moving from what you almost did to what you do, how do you describe yourself? Do you say you're a psychic medium, a no. spiritual? I, I am a spiritual, clairvoyant, clairaudient medium. And what does that mean? Well, firstly, spiritual medium is that I've developed um, what we would term as gifts that really have been passed down through the generations of my family because my grand was a medium before her, her mother, before her, and it goes way back. I'm the first boy to break the mould. Ah. They've always been the women. So when were you aware that there was something a little different with the way that you were approaching life? I had a, a, a stark experience in grandmother's house when we were living there. How old were you then? Derek? I was only six and a half. And um, I was coming from upstairs because in these Victorian houses, there were so many landings in the bedrooms. And right on the very top was a, a attic that Anne, my gran, had... Um, uh, turned into like a playroom for us kids after coming back from school. And Colin and I were playing up there and the, both mum and gran shouted, you know, said, come on, dinner's ready, boys, come on, come down. Colin's down the stairs first, um, being the youngest, the last one. That, and I got to the last landing and I, I heard this bang noise behind me and I looked and I just froze and there's a man standing in the doorway. Now this was something, I, I passed four in the afternoon, daylight. Mm -hmm. I saw him very clearly. I saw the clothes he was wearing. I could see his features. And I froze because I thought in my mind, what's this strange man doing in my grand's house? How's he got in? And I ran down the stairs, nearly falling that last lot, and um, ran into the kitchen here where mum and gran were preparing the food and telling them about the strange man up on the landing. They both looked at each other and grabbed my hands and ran me <coughs> through into the hallway into the bedroom, he's not there. At that tender young age, I thought, my mum thinks I'm lying. Grand thinks I'm lying. So I think I had a few tears, actually. Yeah. Saying, I'm not lying, mum, I'm not lying. I saw the man. So Gran said, son, I believe you've seen the man, but don't you worry, he won't get back in here again. 
However, sat down, she sat me at the table, which was all prepared to have dinner. And she went over to the old cupboard, opened the door, and she brought this old tin box out. Cover on it. Opened it up and just emptied the contents onto the table, onto the linen. And it was all photographs and images of men and women, and even young people that I'd never seen before. I wasn't privy to this box. Now you tell me, can you see that man in any of those photographs? And I looked and I looked. Lo and behold, there was two of them. One of a man, a head and shoulders. Other, in a suit, a three-piece suit, the same colour I saw that man upstairs in. With waistcoat and that. And I said, this the man. And Gran froze and looked at Mum and Mum looked at and said, well, don't worry, son, don't you worry. Uh, that man will change the locks, he'll never get in here again. And didn't say any more about it. That was my first experience of spirit. Who does it turn out to be? I wasn't told until I was nine. Who was it? It was my grandfather who passed over two and a quarter years before I was born. He was also a seafarer and he had a terrible accident in the engine room of the ship in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And gangrene set into his injuries before they could get him to shore. Uh, whatever it was, the poison took him and he showed himself to me. Now Gran knew that was a pointer, said to Mum. He's got the gifts. Mm. We'll have to watch him. So at six and a half, you were first aware that there was something going on. Yes. When was it that you thought, actually, I can make a career out of this, I can help people? Because I was playing um, professional football, soccer, and it, actually earning my living from it, because I went from Liverpool to Wrexham, and I, I went to a number of clubs, ending my footballing career in Australia with my wife and my first son. There was a little baby. Unfortunately, I had uh, quite a bad injury to my left knee in this particular season, and I was out of football. I had an operation on it, and I was out for the rest of the season. And I came back in the second part of the next season, thinking everything's going to be fine. I'm back. I'm fit again. My knee seems to be okay. Three games into the new season, I got clattered again. This time, it was far, far worse because my cruciate ligaments had been damaged beyond. They operated again, they tried to repair but And the club uh, doctor and physio said, that's the end of your footballing days, Derry. So you've got to think about what you're going to do. Now, I went into panic mode. So did my wife, and my wife said, okay. She went back to work to help matters. And I'm looking around for work. Then suddenly I went through, this is bizarre. This sounds bonkers, but it's the truth. I went through a nightmare of weeks, if not months. Every time I went to bed, I'd have these vivid, like, dreams. Uh, I, my gran was coming through to me, who'd already passed the world of spirit. Sam introduced himself to me, my guy. In a dream? Yeah. I actually saw him. So I was thinking at that time, these are, like, dreams, but there's the modern dreams. It got that bad that I used to say to my wife, you know what, I'm not going to, I don't want to go to bed. And for a number of nights I stayed up. I just didn't want to go into that sleep. What was happening was the spiritual side of things were trying to point to me that now was the time for me to develop the gifts 
to work in this sort of industry, if you like. Before I knew it, I was looking at places where I could develop and bring out these gifts even stronger. Because even in my football days, I used to get occasionally, you know, uh, inclinations and things, and I'd tell people things about them, and they'd show the things that happened. So I, I, I found a spiritualist church, what they called spiritualist church, where mediums like myself would take on board, like classes, if you like, uh, groups of people who they knew had the gifts to help them develop. And I joined two developing classes. And both heads of these classes were very well-known mediums in the area. And they helped me in a very short space of time to bring this out. And then I was encouraged to go by the mediums um, to work in the spiritualist churches, on the platform, as they call it, and do readings for people. Not only that, you know, if you're going to make this full-time, you've got to look at it that way, where you earn your income. Um, and I was encouraged how to go about this because I didn't have a clue. And I was encouraged to... It's not uh, the sort of thing you could be trained for. No, absolutely <laughs> not. So I, I, before I knew it, my wife, who was helping me dear, you know, dearly, um, we, um, we leased a, like, shop, if you like. And I had the shop converted into a waiting room and in the back where I would conduct personal readings. And we launched it and... For the first year, um, I just, I didn't go bankrupt, but where my fees, my charges were very, very, and I kept them small. Um, by the time I paid my rents, my electricity, so there wasn't much coming into the, the household coffers. So Gwen said to me, well, you know, you're going to have to change and, you know, do something about this because you can't continue on this way. You, I can see you're enjoying it. I can see you found a new life for yourself and you are coming home. Injured. Why don't you charge a little bit more? And I said, the people won't accept it. Try it, she said. So with a, a lovely push, I did. And lo and behold, they accepted it. Now I thought I can survive and go on. And I did that for many, many years. Do you find there's a balance between... The work that you're doing to, to bring money in, obviously, but also people that are coming to you. Because I suspect the people the coming to you are very vulnerable, aren't they? Yes. Well, how, they can... how do you deal? Well, I, that's what really um, made me uh, worry about charging them extra. Mm. Because I thought, you know, as I was doing, I've got a duty here, a responsibility, to help these people who are in uh, whatever's happening in their lives, whether they're dealing with bereavement, whether they're dealing with ill health, whether they're dealing with uh, their life not um, uh, being a bed of roses. And I, I had this responsibility to try and alleviate, trying to help, trying to guide. And I, the more I did it, the more it was affecting me to realise that there was an importance uh, beyond money. Now, at the same time, the mediums in the likes of the Midlands and the south of England were charging, whereas Derek Accor was charging £5, these people, I believe, couldn't believe it down there because most of them were charging £17.50, some of them were charging up to £20, some of them charging 25 I was charging 5 And, to boot, the only medium in the country that, because I wanted them to, um, to uh, trust me, I wanted them to... Uh, see that I, I, I was genuine by producing. I used to have a tape recorder. bought that and I used to get a stock of tapes. And once I started this reading, 
that tape recorder was on for them. At the end of that reading, they had that tape. The only one in the country doing it. So it paid off so much, and I didn't realise how much it would, why it would, is because people could look back, keep playing it throughout the year, into the second year, and see things happen. And say, there it says it happened, as he said precisely, as he was told. So people, many years on, stopping me in the streets, in Southport, in Liverpool. I come to see you 17 and a half years ago. You don't recognise me, do you? No, I'm sorry. Well, um, and I've still got your precious tape. I just, on the whole man's, everything, everything that you ever stated has happened. You're listening to In Conversation. I'm Andrew Reid, speaking today to Derek Akora, one of the UK's leading psychic comedians. Derek, let's move on from the, the, the face-to-face approach and this massive break into television. I think it probably started slowly and, and sort of exploded with Most Haunted, didn't yes, it? Yes, it did. You've done, you've done a lot. I mean, were you one of the pioneers of television comedians? Well, it, it's, it's stated that I am because even the great Doris Stokes... Um, who uh, was shown a couple of times on television of when she was doing, you know, um, theatres. They were just like one-off things. I was the pioneer of doing live television, okay, without edit. So my neck was on the block because once I was um, talking to a person, all I could do was hear the voice, first of all, over the air. They could see me in the studio. And I would do readings for them that way. And it was so successful that Granada TV said, we want to design a program for you. We're going to go and call it Psychic Lifetime. Derek Akora. Then they brought me an audience where I'd do three audiences a day. Again, not edited, live. So if I made mistakes, there it is. If I didn't, there it is. Then they offered me another out and about with Derek Akora, where I took a small production out with me in the daytime, not the nighttime. And we could be anywhere in the country. And I would go to these so-called historic, haunted, or documented buildings, whether it be an old manor house, a castle. Now, this is where the idea of Most Haunted came from. I was doing that stuff before Most Haunted was born. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. In those days, then they offered me this, and I was, I would, you know, I should have camped out at Granada because I was there four days a week. I suddenly couldn't go back to my office and do my private readings because they put me on contract. They signed me on firstly a year's contract. So I agreed to do it, and then I did the psychic song with Derek Akora, where for the first time they brought alongside a medium, um, a skeptic. Skeptical-minded person, uh, university-educated, very well-known man called Mr. Wiseman. And he was the first um, who used to do psychic studies, a debunker. So there was an element of objective challenge. Yes. And how did you find that? Was that the first time you'd really come across Yes, it it was the very first time. And I thought it was intriguing. I thought, um, is it going to ruin things? Is he going to be saying something outlandish after he's sitting next to me listening what I'm saying to the member of the public? And especially when I had the audience, because he was then allowed to look at what I'd delivered and said to the person and then 
He had to, in his own way, explain how I did this. This is where the word cold reading first cropped out, or hot readings. And it was the likes of this Mr. Wiseman who brought these names into the public knowledge by using cold. No one had ever heard of this before. It wasn't documented, put down in book form from the history of the past. It was just made up from the likes of this man. Now, you may have been to Australia with the football. You were yeah. back there again with your psychic readings. Absolutely. I went on tour of uh, both Australia and New Zealand, certain parts, and the, the, uh, the shows that I was doing, they were all very successful. Um, and I was well pleased with the, um, how I was received. Um, New Zealand was slightly different to Australia, purely simply because what seemed to be happening in New Zealand was there seemed to be more professional debunkers that were trying to challenge me than what they were in Australia. Mm. I dealt with them as I thought was the right way to deal with them. Uh, I said, it's a big old nice world and we're all allowed to have our opinions, our way of thinking, but uh, please, I'll answer anything you want, what I've got knowledge about, of the spirit, but please don't make it personal. Because when these debunkers, if they can't seem to get the right way, whether in interview mode, on television, on radio, and whatever, they have this tendency to start bullying and start to talk personalised things. To pick on the person rather than the, the skill. skill. Yes. When we started the programme, we talked about your four-legged friends. Oh, yes. Canine and feline. Yes. You're really involved in one of this country's leading... Um, support charities for guide dogs. Yes, Pathfinders. Tell me about that. Well, many years ago, um, a lovely lady uh, came to one of the shows. Oh, it was in Glasgow. And she also came to a show in Edinburgh, introduced herself as Anne Royal, who was a blind lady herself. And she explained to us um, that her dear desire, because she said to me, I know all about you, Red, a lot about you, and your thoughts of football and this, that, this, that. Well, I've had a desire all my life to be organising and explain about Pathfinders. Basically, what Pathfinders is about is this. An awful lot of people don't realise how much it costs to develop and train a puppy or a young dog, whether it be a Labrador or a German Shepherd, as Pathfinders use to train it to the point where it goes then with its new friend and becomes the eyes of the new friend. Thirty-six to forty thousand pounds. Over how many years now? Uh, less than years. We're talking maybe nine months. Wow. Now and, yeah. And because there's no central funding to it, just donations, what I wanted to do was to take over Builds a facility where she had her own trainer, she was willing to become a trainer herself, even no blind, to bring down the amount of money it costs to get a dog to that level. And she'd done her figures, and she was explaining to me about which more than halved what it would cost, 16000 as opposed to maybe 36000 She said to me, I know both you and Gwen are dog lovers. I've read up, I've seen, oh yeah, we are. Would you be the, the patrons, please? And we said, oh, wow, you, you know, really? Yes. 
and that we did. So, of course, along the way, we've uh, taken collections at all my shows, each show up down the country, abroad, wherever I go. I take the buckets, and the people have been ever so generous, loving. People have put no uh, notes in, never mind coins. Some have put little donations, what they can afford. And we like to think, Gwen and I, that we've helped. Anne is absolutely thrilled. I'm doing a, a show uh, for them very shortly, where all the proceeds of the show goes to the charity. And uh, we've progressed, and Anne's absolutely thrilled. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, eventually, for Anne to get her dream. Derek Akora, we may have started talking about football and mediums, but I think we now know a lot more about you as a person. Thank you so much for being my guest on In Conversation. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Soccer and Spirits, In Conversation with Derek Akora, was produced and presented by Andrew Reid. The programme was recorded in Lancashire in July 2015. The copyright for all audio and music used remains with the original artists. Further details on the Pathfinder Dogs charity can be found online at pathfinderdogs.org. Post-production was by Marcus Tripp and Andrew Reid. Soccer and Spirits, in conversation with Derek Akora, is a Sunshine Hospital radio production.